sports science, strength conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Hey everybody, I'm going to pause the show real quick and announce something brand new to the Decoding Excellence show. We've created an online community that has exclusive content that you will not be able to get just by navigating to the site alone. If you subscribe today, you will have access to our private podcast, online video lecture series, brand new digital content that we are creating to help support you as a strength and conditioning coach, a new practitioner in the high performance field. You do not want to miss this material. It's going to help you in every facet of your career. Head over to adamringler.com and join the insiders today. Hey, everybody. We have a great Decoding Excellence show on it. Today, I'm talking with the former director of performance nutrition and assistant strength and conditioning coach for the New York Giants, Pratik Patel. He was formerly the director of sports nutrition at University of Oregon, spent some time at my alma mater, Michigan State University, and we get into talking about his stint there in MSU athletics and the department of radiology, and then also his time at Kansas State University. We talk a lot in this show about the demands of professional sport, collegiate sport, his job, his role, his podcast, the Man on Fire podcast, and the reason behind his departure from the New York Giants. You do not want to miss this show. I had a lot of fun with it. Check it out. Teek, welcome to the Decoding Excellence show. I know it's an early early morning for us today, but I uh, wanted to welcome you on the show. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. And, you know, early is as early as you want it to be. It's better than waking up at 4 a.m. and, you know, grinding throughout the season. So I'm not complaining. Yeah, I, I suppose we could, you know, be waking up at 4 a.m., you know, getting the gym clothes on, hitting the weight room, and then spending, you know, 16-hour days on the floor at this moment. So it's not too bad to be behind a, a laptop and a microphone and, and uh, chatting it up a little bit. Hey, so for anybody that doesn't know who you are, which is hard to believe because, you know, a million views or so are your uh, LinkedIn and, and social media article, uh, but, uh, and, and self, you know, a, a published podcast, all this, but for anybody that doesn't know who you are, can you give a brief sort of introduction of uh, who you are and where you come from and, and sort of how you found yourself at this intersection? Yeah. So I'm a registered dietitian and strength and conditioning coach, been doing it since 2009 with stops at Kansas State, Michigan State, University of Oregon. And most recently with the New York Giants, where I was with the team for about three and a half years, but then ended up deciding to leave to pursue other things in my life at the end of training camp um, this this season currently. And I'm originally from Shawnee, Kansas, went to Kansas State uh, for undergrad and grad school. And yeah, currently just uh, residing in Houston, between Houston and Kansas City, just kind of making up with lost time with friends and family and, you know, looking forward to spending the rest of 2020 with uh, my mom, dad, sister, and nephews, uh, something I haven't really been able to do because of the time dedication to sport. So that's currently where I'm at. For anybody that hasn't, you know, at least been familiar with you, I would probably say pause this show, number one, and head over to the Man on Fire podcast and listen to the first episode. If nothing else, listen to the first one right away um, and then resume listening to this because I think this will give a great sort of yeah, like you do such a great service at, uh, at giving the background information. And and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because you've, uh, you know, you've, you've been rose to the highest level of what 
you know, what most of us in performance training think is, you know, the, the, the upper echelon of sports performance and, and elite athletics. And you have a very interesting viewpoint, I think a very human viewpoint about sort of the successes and, and the challenges at that level. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons uh, I wanted to have you on the show and, and talk a little bit about this journey that you've been on. So, you know, I, I guess we'll start at square one because I, I think so much of it is about the genesis of things. But so how, you know, tell me a little bit about your start. You know, I know you you talked about your journey, but tell me a little bit about your start of how you got into coaching, maybe why you got into the coaching industry, like, you know, and, and maybe the the seed that was planted that pushed you in that direction to become you know, an RD and, and to get into strength and conditioning. Yeah. So like, like pretty much everybody else active as a kid played soccer, basketball, uh, in, in grade school, heading into middle school. But like a lot of, I guess, present day kids, I shied away from sports and got more into video games and became a, a lot more sedentary heading into high school. So as you know, with that coupled with horrible eating and nutrition habits and physical inactivity, I became pretty heavy. And as a, you know, Indian American kid in high school in Kansas, who wasn't popular, who, you know, was kind of one of those gifted students based on the courses that I was taking and, and put in, you know, not a lot of popularity. So a time in your life where everything is very, um, so to speak, uh, influential and you know, everything's life or death if you're not popular or whatnot. You know, it wasn't a great time for me. And I wanted to feel more normal. And I think part of that was I fixated a lot on how I looked and what how I was perceived by my peers. And I, I think my my way of feeling normal was, all right, I have to go back and play sports. I have to get in shape. Otherwise, I'm just going to continue to be miserable with no friends. So I started learning about nutrition and grabbed the first magazine that I could find from the local pharmacy. It just happened to be like a muscle and fitness and flex magazine. So my foray into learning about nutrition was the worst possible educational source ever. But, you know, for what it's worth, it, it just opened my mind to just taking better care of myself. So I started just changing the way I was eating. I started to just run on a track, you know, local, the track at the high school just didn't necessarily know anything about training. And I just, I started to go. So over the course of about a year and a half, I, you know, I dropped a lot of weight. I was able to increase, you know, strength, stamina, things like that, because I started getting into the weight room and it just, it changed myself and my outlook and how others perceived me. And I thought that that was the coolest thing ever, how I, I was completely under my control because nobody was telling me what to do. Nobody was showing me what to do, but I ended up, being able to, you know, join the track team, play football last year as a high school. And I think a lot of with that, I enjoyed the training aspect more than the actual competition because I wasn't very good. Let's be honest. I was never going to play in college. I just enjoyed the camaraderie of being a part of the team. You know, the best friends that I, I now have made were you know, some of the more popular kids. So I found a group to fit in with. And that's what really sparked my interest in nutrition and exercise. So I ended up you know, going to Kansas State as an undergrad, I started out in mechanical engineering because that's what all, you know, Indian parents want their kids to do. And I was really good at math and science. But at that level, because I really had not no interest in it, 
and all the other kids were just so much smarter than me or as smarter, if not smarter. I didn't do very well my first year just because I didn't resonate with the coursework. And so a friend of mine said, Hey, you know, I'm in this nutrition and exercise science dual major. You love this stuff too. Why don't you check it out? So I talked to the advisors. Um, I guess it was like 155 credit hour program because it was a dual major and none of my classes really transferred over from engineering, as you would imagine. So I thought, man, you know, I've already got a year banked in school. If I tra- if I leave engineering, I'm going to lose my, you know, $500 or $1,000 engineering scholarship I was getting. And I don't, I don't know if I can be in school for five more years. So I talked to the advisors. They said, well, you don't have to do both. Just choose one path. You can do nutrition. You can do ex-phys, which at K-State's kinesiology. And I said, oh, this is great. So I ended up choosing the dietetics path and really enjoyed it a lot. You know, I, I did really well in the courses. I was having a lot of fun learning the ins and outs about, you know, everything, nutrition, you know, macros, micros, nutrient metabolism, what have you. And ended up graduating, did my internship at the Mayo Clinic and um, came back to Kansas, did some intern work with, you know, the, the Chiefs, Royals, Texans, the RDs that were working there, uh, KU, just learning more about how nutrition works with athletes and how you know somebody could work in that type of setting as a sports dietitian how do they collaborate with the strength coaches what does this look like and at that time i was definitely not ready to jump into anything like that i need more experience and there weren't any jobs available so a lot of people had mentioned that you know what if you can't market yourself as just a sports dietitian because a lot of places just weren't hiring back then this is like 2008 2009 you can get your foot in the door as a strength coach. So went back to K-State, was fortunate enough to go there as a graduate teacher, you know, doing research and, you know, taking the classes in kinesiology. And that's where I started to actually really enjoy coaching. So they had a functional intensity training lab that was started by Katie Heinrich, who came from the University of Hawaii, where she was doing research on just a variety of different populations. And that's where I started learning a lot more about weightlifting, training, um, teaching group fitness classes. So I think it was after one of them, one, a class that I took that I was just giving some instruction to a handful of people that were still around, you know, after class, everybody's still um, collaborating and communicating and having fun. And one of the coaches came up to me and said, you know what, you'd make a really good coach just based on how I was talking and instructing. And I thought, oh, that would be cool. And I guess that's where my love for coaching started to exacerbate itself because it's very similar to working with somebody in a nutrition capacity. It's you have this information, you want them to get better, but you have to find the way to communicate it to them to where they understand and want to do what you're telling them to do. So it's very similar in that regard, just in different, you know, you're talking about anatomy and physiology, structure, function, bioenergetics, instead of, you know, macros, micros and timing. So, you know, it's fortunate enough to reach out to the men's basketball team there told them who I was and I was like, Hey, do you have anybody working with your athletes in terms of nutrition? Uh, they said, no. I'm like, you know, I'd be happy to just work with you guys, do whatever you guys need. And so I was, you know, able to work with them for almost two years until the coaching staff left for South Carolina. And then I ended up leaving after graduating and, you know, interviewed at a few different places was still very unknown, very raw in the game, but was fortunate enough to get a job at Michigan state as just a sports dietitian. And from there, you know, that, that was 2012. 
so had stops at you know University of Oregon and then the Giants after that. Yeah, and what you know, and we'll we'll kind of go through this timeline a little bit. I want to poke on uh, your K State early years just because I want to know. It certainly resonates with me because I, I've shared this sort of story on the show as well. You know, I went into Michigan State University as an undergrad in business and. Uh, I'm taking, you know, accounting and and these, you know, finance classes. And I'm recognizing that, you know, I am struggling in these courses. And I I did this because that's my presumption was, you know, this is this is what my parents want me to do. Um, and then I'm I'm seeking refuge from the textbooks by going and, you know, logging on to online training forums, right? Or, or like going to the gym or or learning about strength and conditioning or fitness. And, uh, and this, this course goes for, you know, two more years. I get, I'm literally finishing up my sophomore year and I go in cause I'm trying to apply for the business school and the advisor says, Hey, what well, Adam, um, we're not going to accept you number one, but even if we did accept you, you'd be the very worst business school, uh, student. You'd be the, like the, the one percentile, um, even if you were. Uh, so we, we highly advise you maybe to try to find a different major. And I just remember this like come to Jesus moment where I'm sitting with my my father and I'm like, dude, like, honestly, like I this is what I thought you wanted me to do. And it was a very pivotal moment in my career and, and life, I suppose. And he's like, it was very freeing because he was like, Adam, like, I just want you to be happy and do what you, you know, what you think you're good at and what you want to do. And I was like, well. You know, the whole idea that the reason I pursued business was because I wanted to open up a, a performance training business afterwards. And then that gave me the start to go into like kinesiology. And so I enrolled in kinesiology and I, I went straight from the end of that sophomore year through the summers to catch up. Um, a lot of those gen ed courses uh, transferred. But like, you know, for I, I would presume, you know, going from engineering to kinesiology at K-State, like... Was there any moment, like particular strong resonating moment where you're like, I got to make a change. I got to do something different. Or was it just more natural for you? I think I always knew that I didn't really belong. Just when you're on the initial courses, the intro to mechanical engineering courses, and you're talking to all the other peers in the major. I mean, it's easy to see who belongs and who doesn't. And I can only imagine how all of the other people that I was in class with in different groups with, you know, taking on different projects viewed me because I was the one who would, it would be hit or miss with if I would go to class or not, how much I was contributing to these different projects that were put together because they just seemed to have that so much more knowledge about the subjects that we were covering, probably because they just liked it and they, it resonated with them. And I was kind of just scraping by getting, you know, A's, B's, and C's in classes. And, you know, I'd only gotten a C once before my entire life. And then I got a C. I scraped a C plus in engineering physics, you know, class that allowed you to, you know, they had, I think, five total exams, but only four counted for the entire semester. And one of them I just decided to not even go to because I was so ill prepared. And I decided to go, you know, to a party instead. So I think for me, it was not just one thing. It was, I just kind of knew. And it was the first time in my life, you know, taking classes where I'm like, you know, I'm not 
ahead. I'm not getting good grades. I need to do something. Otherwise I'm in trouble. Yeah. 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 I felt like it was particularly for me, like, you know, those classes was a chore to show up to. And then once I enrolled in kinesiology, it was much of a, this is exciting to go to class, at least initially, you right? Like, it's just like every class spoke to me in a different sort of way. And that was a moment where I knew that like, this was going to be something that I wanted to pursue. Um, so from that, right, like you talked about um, Katie, you know, from Hawaii a little bit, but like, as you went through those, you know, K-State days, you're getting involved in sort of the dietetics program, you're working with men's basketball, you know, was there anybody in those sort of early pivotal years that you could sort of point to that you, whether it's, you know, at K-State or Michigan State or any of your various stops that you're like, this person really helped set me up or like gave you a beacon of inspiration or was a positive influence or a mentor or something that really drawed out like that you're like, man, like this is this is the reason why I'm going to continue to pursue because, you know, this person has helped me in this journey or provided some inspiration or motivation or influence to help you obviously, you know, get to, to where you continue to go to. Yeah. I'd say at, at K-State during my uh, master's degree, it was, it was Katie. And so Dr. Heinrich, she was ended up becoming my major professor for my thesis study. So I ended up doing a legit eight week exercise intervention study. Uh, which was an adventure in and of itself, given I thought I was going to do the coursework option, finish it up, and then apply for as many different, you know, SNC, RD positions that I could. But being able to work under her, she, I, I learned a lot more than I ever th- thought I would, just because she is a really good professor, but she also conducts research. She knows how to connect with students and the students that she mentors, not only the ones that she teaches. So I learned a lot in terms of the academic sense from her, which I think is kind of invaluable for a lot of us that, you know, go through these programs thinking, all right, I'm going to get my bachelor's, I'm going to do my internship, I'm going to get my master's, and then I'm going to start to try to teach, or I'm going to start to try to coach and start being integrated with the athletes. So the whole academic side of it sometimes becomes thrown thrown to the side, and you don't get to learn a lot of different things that you could potentially cross over to working with athletes, working in an athletic department. So, you know, at that time I was quote unquote developing range and she, like, we had a great relationship, you know, do workouts together, this and that, spend, you know, had a nice little circle of friends within the kinesiology department, within this, you know, little apple Manhattan community, but she was also kept me accountable too. And I think sometimes, you know, when you work closely with somebody and you think you've got this kind of friendship relationship, you try to not take advantage of them, but get a little bit too comfortable in terms of what your responsibilities are. So I was helping her with a couple of research projects while putting together my master's thesis. So there were times where I needed to be in the lab and, you know, maybe I was a little bit late over the course of a few days over the course of a few different weeks. And she, you know, she didn't hesitate to say, Hey, you know, I don't know what's going on, but this is the expectation for you. I need you to do this, you know, no excuses. This is your responsibility and this is your job. So I appreciated her doing that. And when she did that, I'm like, all right, well, I can't, you know, take these liberties because even though I think I'm special or she thinks there's something in me that potentially could be really great. Uh, I think, I think that was really important. And when I got to Michigan state, it was two different people. It was Ken Manny, who he knows well, very well. 
and then Joey Eisenman. So I was the sports dietitian designated to work with all of the different sports, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week on top of assisting, you know, Joey in this department in radiology doing research, uh, assisting with teaching classes, but also he created this program called Spartan Performance, which was holistic youth training and development for the mid-Michigan community of youth athletes. So the person that he was working with was kind of like my initial supervisor, uh, just a person that I didn't really resonate well with. And it was difficult to work with and a lot of other grad students under him and a lot of other uh, staff members and workers felt the exact same. So I kind of lean on Joey just because of like, you know, he's a really fiery guy. He's motivated. He's very experienced and has been very successful in his academic career, published hundreds of papers and developed departments from the ground up. So I, I learned a lot from him in terms of time management, leadership, um, how to work well with others, how to stay motivated. And then, you know, working under Coach Manny or alongside him in his staff, uh, it was kind of the the boot camp, so to speak, that I needed where, you know, his mantra is you got to earn the jersey, iron sharpens iron, you know, nothing's going to be given to you, you have to earn it. And at that time, that was something I needed to go through because I had so many ideas in my head. I wanted to do so much. You know, I thought nutrition was going to save the world. It's life and death and it needed to be integrated and implemented by every team. But the leadership there from the ADs didn't necessarily want to invest in that area in particular. So that was difficult to go through. But, you know, what I learned from Coach Manny was just all those different little things about life, you know, how to approach the everyday day to day, how to overcome different adversity how you need to act in certain situations, how to be professional, how to talk to a lot of different people. I mean, all those different things that good leaders show you and tell you, you know, there were, there was no sugarcoating. There were good days, there were bad days. Uh, and I think that's what I liked about his leadership style was it wasn't just, oh, happy-go-lucky, smile, smile, smile. It's like, no, there's an accountability piece. There's a hard work piece. There's a consistency piece. I think, you know, for the most part, up until I met Aaron at the Giants. I mean, I would say those three people have been the most influential for me. Um, and again, it wasn't just a direct mentor-mentee relationship. I didn't have anybody from the dietetic side to show me like, hey, this is how you communicate with athletes. This is how you create a program. This is how you adapt to situations. I had to learn all that myself. So a lot of mistakes were made, but it was more, I'm trying something this way. It doesn't work. Okay. I have to try something different. I tried something, it works. Okay, let me continue to do that. You pointed to it with Dr. Heinrich. It's like the best mentors or influencers or advisors are the ones that continue to hold you to a standard, right? To continue to challenge you um, to be better than yourself, right? And I, I felt that way, certainly. Like I was on the Olympic side uh, of Michigan State University. So, you know, red. Um, you know, Tim Wakeham certainly did that. There were good days and bad days and you knew about your bad days and that was just being held accountable. You'd go over to the, um, Duffy complex and, you know, Ken Manny would be there larger than life figure and he would hold you accountable because it's ultimately fell under his program, the umbrella of the strength conditioning as the head strength coach. Uh, and then, you know, like Joe, like I, I met Joey through red and then, uh, you know, the impressive sort of Spartan performance center that he built 
which was, you know, an amazing sort of high performance, like even before high performance was really a buzzword, I think a really like from diagnostics to intervention, to protocol, to testing, to training was really some cutting edge stuff that, you know, I, I looked across the collegiate landscape and I was like, you know, there's a lot of strength conditioning programs that aren't offering even, you know, a tenth of the services that they're providing from, uh, from that program. So there's a lot of people in that, you know, from, from Mike Forkopich to Tommy to, to all those guys. So, and, and Aaron as well. Uh, I, I do want to poke on this a little bit is that, you know, you go and my, my order might be slightly backwards chronologically, uh, perhaps, but you go from the big 12 to big 10 to Michigan state, uh, maybe K-State back to Big 12, certainly to Oregon, uh, through the Pac-12. And then you find yourself in a position where you get to uh, you get to be behind the shield, right? And you get to the NFL. Um, you know, can you draw any sort of parallels between collegiate to professional? Can you talk about, you know, the demands or, you know, the, the structure of those, uh, of the NFL or your responsibilities, your duties, at least initially when you first got there, the excitement, the, I mean, I've given you a, a pretty long leash here. Um, but just, you know, cause I think so many people as an aside, so many people want to aspire to get to pro sport. Oh man, I want to get to the upper echelon of professional sport, whatever that might be. It could be NBA, it could be NFL, it could be NHL, MLS, whatever it might be, premier league. And it's like, you don't know what you're signing up for, the good, the bad, the law, the 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 demands of things. But can you at least set the scene um, initially for what that looked like your early days of uh, of getting to the league and, and talking about sort of those demands? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll uh, I'll kind of just start a little bit more with my transition for why I ended up leaving my previous places. You know, Michigan State was great because I learned a lot, was able to integrate the department, the sports nutrition department, but I wasn't in charge of an actual sports nutrition department within the athletic department. That's what I was hoping to do. And I was hoping the administration would see it that way, but they said, well, you know, maybe in three to five years. And in my head, I'm like, well, you know, I'm ready now. I'm ready to take the next step. I don't want to just wait three to five years to see if then they're ready to move forward with doing that because other programs were starting to flourish. And I felt like I'd hit a plateau with my learning and my ability to provide value to the department. So that's when I started looking to see if there were other opportunities where I can actually be in charge and, you know, have those administrative roles mold the department under what I feel could potentially benefit the student athletes and all the other staff members and coaches. So that's when there was an opening at Oregon to do just that. So that was very fortunate and the timing was just right. You know, I don't think there's anything luck involved in it. It's just being patient and waiting for opportunities. So that was a great learning experience. And I was in charge of a full department, budget, staffing, creating all the protocols, integrating with all the sports, you know, working with a self-op food service in a more high-performance environment where you now you have a whole sports science and performance department. You have coordinators, you have a head of performance, something I had never experienced before. Uh, so I had to, you know, step my game up, learn what they were doing, integrate myself with them. So we had a few good years, but then, as you know, uh, it's hard to stay on top. So the football team did pretty poorly, which affected the revenue and the budgets for the entire athletic department. 
And that's why, you know, football is kind of the game because it helps fund pretty much everything. And when football didn't have a 9, 10, 11, 12 win season, it was, it was a big hit. Um, so there was a hiring freeze. There's a change in coaching staff and leadership and, you know, what came in um, just changed the dynamic a little bit. It, it didn't feel very comfortable. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to continue doing. I also felt that there were parts of the performance staff that were underperforming and it, it was just known by everybody else, even the players too, to where they were asking me like, Hey, can you help out with this? We like, we just need something different. We need something better. It's just one of those things where you kind of know who's holding up their end of the bargain. And there was an area that wasn't. And, you know, I think that resounded with me because, all right, well, you know, I'm in charge of nutrition, but I also have this background in strength and I've always loved coaching. And then this piece isn't where it needs to be. Is there something that I can do to help out? Because it's such an, seeing Coach Manny and his program in Reds and Vorks, how important it is and how integrated they were and how much of a difference they can make. And then going to, you know, Oregon and not being able to see the cohesiveness and there's a lot of miscommunication. Like, wow, if you had a program like they had at Michigan State in terms of effectiveness and buying and accountability, maybe, you know, this football team been to a national championship twice could have gotten over the hump if there was some resemblance of that. Maybe not, you know, you never know. Maybe they wouldn't have been able to go to those national championship games if there was another training program in place. But that's what prompted me to go back and see like, all right, well, is there an opportunity for me to be able to do both? Because I was, you know, under Spartan Performance, I was coaching the youth athletes, but I wasn't doing it with the Michigan State athletes just because I wasn't a strength coach at Michigan State, but I was doing it under Joey. So that that's something that I always love to do. And the opportunity as I was looking for the next step, as you said, the shield is so attractive because on the outside, you think about being able to use your knowledge and experiences to improve the best athletes in the world and, you know, the most popular sport in America and the most successful professional league. I'm like, who doesn't want to try to do that? Um, so that's where I was like, is there an opportunity at the NFL that I could use my skills, unique skills to help out a team? And it wasn't like, I just didn't want to get hired by a team and get thrown into a sports dietitian role. It's probably similar to what I was doing at, at Michigan state where I wasn't able to do what I potentially could do and bring to the table what I was doing, especially when coming from a place like Oregon, which, you know, when I was there in 14, 15, 16, and then I believe it in 17, how we integrated that program is probably still better than what most colleges are doing right now, right? Better than most professional teams are doing right now. And I didn't want to just take a step back, even though, you know, we go to the professional level and work with a professional team. But if I'm doing something remedial, I mean, how is that satisfying? So I was fortunate enough to hear about the Giants. You know, they didn't want to just work with a, a contracted dietitian. They wanted a dietitian and strength coach with a strength background. And it, like I said, timing was everything. And that was the time that I was looking to, you know, potentially move forward and seek other jobs, whether, you know, it'd be NBA, um, professional soccer, NFL. And that's when I heard that's what Aaron was looking for. So I reached out to him and it just seemed to be a good fit. And so there's not a lot of differences in terms of programming, you know, what the athletes are like from college football to professional football. It's just, you just have a lot less time with them. And now their priorities are completely different. So college kids, you know, a lot of them, they want to go to the league. A lot of them want playing time. A lot of them, 
you know, they just, they just want to feel like they belong because they come from a lot of different backgrounds. Now these guys in the NFL, now they're fighting for a roster spot. They care about money now. That's what's fixating on their mind. Maybe they don't really care about wins and losses, but they're just, they're all fending for themselves. So now your communication style, the way you, you interact with them has to be completely different. Cause now you're not talking to 17, 18 year old kids. You're talking to people that are as old as you, if not older, that have families that have bank accounts with millions of dollars in it that have had a lot of success without you. So understanding how much of a business it is and everybody talks about it and you hear about it from the outside, but when you get into it, you really start understanding like this is, this is a business and now it's also a team, but you know, players can make business decisions for themselves, how much they want to invest in what you're saying, how much buying they give, or, you know, you could just be somebody that they interact on the daily basis and get all their information from the outside because their agent, their whoever, family members connected them with somebody. And now there's a trust built up over there. You know, they do X, Y, and Z in the off season. And then when they come back to us, we have to evaluate them and see like, did you even lift a weight? Did you even run a sprint? Did you even manage your calories? So it, the, the difficulty with that is there's so much time you're not with them and they're doing X, Y, and Z, their training programs and their nutrition, their recovery might not coincide with what you imagine they should be doing. And um, I think that's that's the biggest difference from college to the pros. I think there's a lot of different, <laughs> certainly differences between the motivations and the reasons that they're there and that the, the, the construct of the business aspect of professional sport to amateur sport. What about, you know, as you went there, what were some of the things that that perfectly fit within your expectations of what it was going to be like when you first arrived and and first got to, you know, professional sport or the shield? Um, and then maybe to contrast that, what were some things that you expected uh, to happen or maybe not necessarily organizationally, but expected that? really surprised you about the differences between the two? I think the ability to be able to provide resources, uh, you know, I don't want to say an unlimited budget, but you have teams that are very open and willing to try new things, to spend the money they need to spend on the services and the resources that they feel are going to benefit the team. And there, there's a big difference team to team. And you know, when you talk to coaches that have been around, players that have been around, they say, oh man, here, it's awesome. You guys have this, this, and this. You guys do this, this, and this. And then you ask them, like, hey, what was your experience with another team? You know, what do they provide you? Because I don't want to compare. I just want to see what your level of expectation is and can we meet the needs of what you you need to be successful. And it's a mixed grab with, you know, what they provide them in terms of prehab, rehab, recovery from an athletic medicine perspective, how much they invest in training and monitoring. And I'm not talking about doing science experiments and monitoring everything. I'm just like the basic things in the weight room. Do you have enough pieces of equipment to meet the demands of what the players are going to see on the field? And, you know, these guys are banged up, you know, no matter how fresh they think they are, can you make your adjustments and correctives based on, you know, does somebody need an alternative, you know, major movement? And then do you have, you know, do you care enough to monitor, you know, health status, biomarkers, investing in just proper food service, recovery stuff? Um, there's there's a mixed bag. So uh, that's what I expected to be able to not just have an unlimited budget, but, you know, not to be put under this microscope where, hey, we're, we're counting dimes here. We're, you know, the bean picker, bean counters are 
going to get mad at you if you spend too much money on, you know, these recovery items or these supplements and X, Y, and Z. Um, but what surprised me was that the NFL is still really behind in terms of integrated progressive performance, just in terms of like a cohesive performance department model where you see a lot, a lot of that more at the college level. I'm not saying that it's where it needs to be, but I mean, you just have, I think, I think even now in 2020 going on to 2021, but a handful of teams have like their own full-time dietitian. And you look at all the power five schools and you have not one, two, you've got multiple, I mean, for a variety of reasons because of the number of sports you have, but at some of these power five schools, you have multiple people assisting with um, football, you know, because it is such a large sport. You've got 110 athletes in college and then you have 63. Now I don't even know what the numbers are because of the CBA and COVID you've got, you know, 75 plus the injured guys. So it's a lot of people to take care of. Um, I, I expected just a lot more in terms of the quality of department heads and how good they are. Because just like with any field, any professional league, you have people that have been there for a very long time. They get, you know, inundated into the family of the business and, and the owners. So people just stick around, whether they're good or bad, who knows? That's not for me to decide, but that, it's like that with a lot of places where, you know, the lifers get in, you know, people like them. They, they started as like a, a ticket intern and now, you know, they're a VP of operations. It's like, well, shoot, how does that happen? Have you ever been to another team? Have you ever, you know, seen how other places do it to bring in new ideas? I think there's a lot of just that stagnation within professional sports. So that surprised me quite a bit, like two weeks in and I'm like, wow, this is nowhere near as streamlined. And, you know, there's a lot more silos than I thought there would be. So that's what surprised me. I think too, like to maybe parallel some of the observations you made at your previous stops, right? Like when you're looking, you know, across the horizon at different departments and different people, and you're starting to recognize that there might be some people that's not pulling their weight or not, you know, at least performing in a way that you would, you would expect. And that can be discouraging in some respects, you know, like lifers that somehow found their way within the organization. And, and now, you know, you're over there busting your tail, trying to deliver, you know, amazing results. And you're, you're looking at other people and departments and you're like, man, you know, like why, you know, I, it would be great if you guys could, you know, match our efforts or match our, uh, returns. Um, but I, I wanted to come back. I, I made a note here because you talked about your time at, uh, at Oregon and to, to go through the highs and then to have this sort of budget freeze and hiring freeze. And then, you know, you're starting to see the, uh, the construction of, of the finances and then you get to that league and, now you got this unlimited budget and uh, roughly unlimited, right? Like you can do and implement what you want, right? And that could be very liberating, right? Because, you know, you have this playing field where, you know, you can do what you want and you do have the budget to do those things and you are pretty liberated and freeing. And one of the things I've, I've seen too, that's a very huge demotivator is, 
you have that and then that's taken away or you have a bunch of responsibility or, and, and it's exciting and you have your hands in a lot of different pots and you can shake things up and make impact here and make impact there. And people are very open to new ideas and, and challenging them to get better. And then that's taken away. And uh, and I don't want to speak for you on that, but, you know, I, I on your show, Man on Fire podcast, you talked a little bit about the constriction of some responsibilities from going into this, maybe potentially your last year there um, with some of the changing of, of the coaching staff. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of how that, at least maybe what you're wrestling with in your mind? And for those people that that don't know what I'm talking about, you got to you got to check out Man on Fire podcast. Listen to the, at least the first two. Subscribe, sign up. Um, I think you're going to get a lot of value out of it, anyways. But can you talk a little bit about sort of what that felt like and what you're wrestling with from you know the first couple of years that you were with the Giants and maybe the last potential year that you were going into before your departure? Yeah, and it, it was something that I thought about after right after the 2019 season. So my first season, you know, there's a lot of expectations with the team because of the previous year, the team made it to the wild card game, uh, ended up losing at green Bay. Um, Eli played really well. It's just the receivers, uh, you know, there's some drop passes, drop touchdowns. And then the defense was on the field for quite a while. You know, green Bay put up a lot of points, but the defense was excellent that year. The offense struggled a little bit. So even everybody's mind is like, oh, we need to improve the offense and then the team will be set. You have all the pieces. So that's where free agents in the draft came. And there was a lot of hoopla, like, oh, the Giants probably going to make the Super Bowl. And I mean, you know how that is. That's just a curse, especially in the NFL when you, <laughs> there's expectations on the team and more often than not, they don't match them. So 10 games in or whatever it was, 12 games in, head coach and GM get fired. <laughs> I think we're all gone. But luckily, we get retained. New GM, new head coach. Uh, so the first year, you know, there it didn't go as well as we wanted to, but there was a lot of excitement because the second half of the year, the team just performed a lot better. So there, there was a lot of excitement going into 2019, and then again, the team doesn't perform. So you're you're thinking, all right, you know, we spend all this time working and putting together everything that we do, adapting it, adjusting it as needed. You know, we're kept around because the organization. Uh, recognizes that we are an asset. We're good at what we do. The players are going to be your biggest sounding board because they're going to be asked by all the new regimes coming in. You know, are these people any good? And they're going to ask around to your peers and whatnot. So I'm like, all right, well, we put together these really good plans. The programming is great. The integration, the accountability, even in the three worst years in the history of the organization, players were still showing up and, you know, they're getting their work done. We were trying to do as much as we could for just keeping them as healthy as possible, but it was all for not in terms of wins and losses. And that we know that we don't contribute to wins and losses. We just assist with doing what we can with what we can control. But there is a level of frustration where you know that what you're doing is good. The players buy in, you know, you hear from them about what it's like on other teams, but those other teams that don't seem to be up to par, they're having success. And it all comes down to, the quality of coaches, the quality of the players, you know, what you're doing with them. And if that's not good, the buy-in's not good, then they're just going to look out for themselves. And that was very evident in my first year in the league. So thinking about it, you know, what we were doing from performance staff was, I was learning a lot because you're put in a situation where I, I was never put in before. You know, I'm a certain coach, I'm a dietitian, 
I'm in charge of, you know, recovery, sleep and biomarkers, things that you're not taught in school, things that most people aren't doing within their, their full-time jobs. So there was a lot of learning and a lot of growth, especially working with a guy like Aaron, who is so knowledgeable, you know, he's, he's had so many years of coaching, but he's not like an old school coach. He's very progressive. And that's why organizations like him. That's why the players like him. So he, he's experienced a lot. He has a thirst for knowledge. He learns a lot. And when I got hired, I, I felt that I needed to emulate that. So it wasn't like he him directly telling me, it's just the conversations we had, the questions he asked me, the questions I asked him, how we interacted on a daily basis, what I did to learn and grow to be able to have these conversations with him was invaluable. I wouldn't have been able to do that at any other team, you know, especially if I was just the dietitian. So I think for me, that was worth more than, you know, being able to go to the playoffs. Because again, what I took pride in was, making a difference for the athletes, teaching them things that they hadn't been taught before, helping them whether coming back from injury, teaching them things that nobody was able to get through to them, doing things for them that nobody thought of because I was put in this role. So that was worth more than the Super Bowl because, again, a Super Bowl, is a, as a coach, it's a player thing. It has really nothing to do with us. But I started, you know, you evaluate things. Like if if the team's not doing well for a variety of reasons, you know, does it seem like it's it's going in the right direction? Does this organization support me in the way that I could help them out? And so there's a lot of questions there where there's never a formal evaluation done by the organization on me and my department and what I was doing. You know, Aaron did it for us. Obviously, we met every year, but there was nothing from the top on down. So I'm like, I don't even know what the organization thinks of me. The people that are decision makers, the people that keep giving me these contract extensions and a bump in salary. It's like, all right, well, is this your way of saying, Hey, we like you. So here's, you know, another contract for next year. So we're just going to keep you around. There was nothing like, Hey, let's evaluate you. What's good. What's bad. What the players say and how you can improve. It's more of me evaluating myself, which I'm always going to be my harshest critic and just going off of that. So there's, you know, you have to question some of the leadership from the top on down. And then when you have another staff come in back in January, um, you know, I, had questions about, you know, what does my future hold? Because I don't know what the new coaching staff wants of me. And so those conversations were had and then the staff was brought in, we were retained. And then, you know, what's good for the organization and what they need might not necessarily be good for individual staff members. And that was kind of the situation that I was put in where Aaron ended up leaving for Indiana, a great opportunity. So that was one of the biggest things in my mind was how does my role with the team now continue on now that Aaron's not here, who I was hired by, you know, and coach Mac approved by Ronnie. Then am I still, you know, in this dual role where I'm still doing a lot of different things, which is good. Or, you know, am I going to get demoted in the eyes of what the new staff wants? So that's kind of what ended up happening was they wanted me to have a singular focus instead of being able to be in the weight room coaching up groups um, where I would just be kind of just, stuck dealing with the food in the cafeteria, worrying about all that stuff, just spending my day doing assessments. And I'm like, all right, well, I've done that before. I know how it works. And, you know, they don't necessarily know what I've done because they've only seen people operate in roles that they've worked with. So the previous stops, the previous places that they've been, they've only seen what a, what a dietitian can do in these specified roles, which is good, but it's not, as integrated as I 
was able to be with the team doing what I was doing in that role. So when, when a new head strength coach came in, you know, I went to, you know, the VPs and the ownership and said, Hey, this is my idea. I'm just trying to figure out what, where I fit in all this. And then, you know, gave them some proposals, this, this, and that. And they're like, all right, well, let's just make the hire. And then we'll, we'll go from there. And then the hire was done, no conversations about it. And then we got thrown into the pandemic. So I'm sitting at home by myself trying to meet the demands of what the new staff want, doing everything virtually, still with no reevaluation of the past season. We never sat down as a performance team to evaluate any of that, which was, I think, is a missed opportunity because it was just the medical staff and then us. And then Aaron leaves. So it's still the medical staff, the strength staff. And then I'm just kind of in this limbo by myself. So I'm like, am I specifically just nutrition involved in this department? Or do I still report as a strength coach under the new strength coach? I mean, there were no discussions of any of that. And there was more than enough time to fucking do that. I mean, we're all sitting at home. So the the training staff was putting together the protocols, trying to figure out what was going to happen when um, the teams are going to return back for training camp. So there was a lot of discussion amongst them. I was, you know, doing my own thing, working with the players, guys that were reaching out to me, you know, since I was now the longest tenured coach on the whole coaching staff because of all the different changes and then Aaron leaving. So they relied on me. They're, you know, the players wanted to know like, Hey, what's going on? How's this going to go? What kind of training are we going through? What are practices going to be like? And I'm like, you know what? I really have no idea, but from what I've heard, this is the expectation. You guys need to make sure you're ready because what, the team had been doing the past three, four years wasn't good enough. So yeah, it's going to suck, but this is what needs to happen for the team to progress to actually get some wins on Sunday or whenever the game, you know, Monday, Thursday. So we get to training camp and we end up doing it at the stadium instead of the facility to, to match the COVID rules. So which, which changed everything. So now you have less people assisting day to day because the NFL put a list of player people on tiers. So you only have X number of people that could be around the players. And now my responsibilities increased because we have less help, but none of this was discussed among the performance staff. So now I'm doing, you know, the day-to-day stuff that I would normally have interns do. And I've had them do in the past where my days are just monopolized by doing just these remedial tasks to be able to get through training camp and spending, you know, six to eight hours just doing weigh-ins and weigh-outs and hydration assessments. And it's like, look, this isn't exactly what I signed up for. You know, I, I had always questioned, is this exactly the path I want to go through? Because, you know, you, you spend so much time away from family. You know, it's been 10 years since I had been with my family regularly. And is that is that trade-off worth it? So working under Aaron, doing what I was doing in that dual role was because I was growing, I was learning. I was, I was doing things that I had never experienced before and feeling very integrated and helping the team out. Well, now with this quote unquote demotion, I'm still working, you know, these long hours, but I don't feel like I'm really contributing anything to the team because I'm just doing all these remedial tasks. It's, it's not very fulfilling. You know, it's kind of a kick in the nuts because it's, it's not what I wanted and signed up for, you know, obviously, yeah, the money's good. The titles are good and this and that, but is this exactly what I want to do? And in my head, I'm thinking, and the, the time commitment and the choice to do it isn't worth it anymore because I just, you know, it just didn't resound well with me. So now the time away from family started becoming more and more prevalent in my mind. You know, my dad turned 70 during training camp when I wasn't able to be there with them and 
being able to see, you know, the videos and pictures, it's like, great, you know, another birthday, another family event that I'm not a part of. And, and what's the reason why? Well, I'm fucking doing USGs and weigh-ins for eight hours a day, you know, sitting in the cafeteria. And it's like, this is a joke. Like, this isn't how I envision my life going. You know, I'm single. I don't have any kids. Am I going to do this for another 10 years where, you know, I'm 45, getting close to 50, and I'm still living by myself, still working, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day, now not feeling like I'm making an impact because of what the duties and responsibilities were now. And I just came to that decision to say, this isn't what I wanted anymore. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, right? Like there is so many people, there's a lot to chew on. So, you know, I'm going to apologize to both you and the listeners here as well. But there's a lot of people that I respect that I have found in very similar situations lately, right? That have, you know, for one reason or another, personal, family, commitments, life have walked away from from this, right? And they made that decision for themselves. It's notable because I don't necessarily know if a lot of people know what they're signing up for, right? When they when they get into this, like of of any profession, and I get it. Like like I I understand to be successful, you have to put in the time, you have to put in the work, and it's it's going to be demanding. But I think for outside looking in, if you were you know the armchair quarterback watching, you know, football on a Sunday morning from, you know, wherever that you just don't understand the time commitment that a lot of these coaches will put in. And there's been people I've known personally here and elsewhere that's, you know, that's literally made that same decision that was at the the highest level um, NFL and NBA that's just said, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to, I want to have a life outside of the 17, 16 hours that I put in. I want to see my kids. I want to see my family. I, I, I say this to you because, A, I, I respect you and I respect that decision. If I were to pivot this in some way, what are some advice that you hear that our industry, sports, you know, sports performance, strength and conditioning, whether it's nutrition, whether it's dietetics, and, and hopefully it's not necessarily so X's and O's, but what is advice that you've heard being touted social media or elsewhere, which is somewhat of a vapid toxic place anyways, that you hear read and you're like, man, you know what? I disagree with that. And and maybe there isn't anything, but you know, I, I, I read a lot of things online and I'm like, I think that is bad advice to tell coaches or young professionals getting into the field. Uh, And I disagree with that. (laughs) Probably all of it, but no, that's a good question. Because you you have a lot of good advice out there on social media, but you also have a lot of bad advice. And it kind of just depends on where it's coming from, whether it's like a sport coach or, you know, an RD or a strength and conditioning coach. You don't really see a lot from trainers. But some of it, I I do agree with with a lot of it, where a lot of these more experienced coaches are now being able to share what they've learned and trying to tell the younger coaches or, you know, if I were to tweet something to my younger self, I think one of the biggest things is don't make the job your life because it can be taken away from you at any moment, whether you get fired, whether, um, you know, we've had some strength coaches pass away this year, which has been awful, good men. Um, Some I've worked with, incredible people where everybody says, oh, you got to grind, you got to do anything you can do to get your foot in the door. 
I think the biggest thing is making connections because you, you know how it is in this industry, whether a head coach or somebody knows somebody that they've worked with in the past, or they're going to ask, you know, some of the more well-experienced and well-known coaches about, you know, do you have a guy? And this happens in, in dietetics too, which is terrible, but it's just how it goes right now. Um, it's not all about getting certs and having all these alphabets behind your name, alphabet soup, but being able to show what you can do, like being different. I think being different is huge where other people just say, this is what you need to do. This is the path you need to take. Well, if I, if somebody tried to emulate my path, I'd say hundred percent would not end up doing the exact same thing because it's the individual person, my desire to want to succeed and the commitment that I made to just wanting to be the best. That's how I got to where I am. And part of that was, you know, neglecting time from family and friends because you, that you really don't have a choice. Same thing with any, any sport coach, position coach. I mean, you have to put in the time to get your name out there so people can vouch for you. That's the biggest thing. Um, you know, I, I know there's more certs coming out and this and that. And like, really, like if you look at somebody's resume or a cover letter, I mean, none of that matters. Like I'm kind of looking at some for this, you know, this part-time gig I'm doing just resumes of practitioners and they all look the same. So it's like, Jesus, you know, how do you differentiate yourself? Um, so I, I think what I would say is instead of trying to disprove or, or talk about things that don't agree with, I'll talk about things that I think that are really important. And the first is understanding your niche and who you are. What are you really good at? You know, that's what's going to help separate you or get your name out there, especially if nobody knows who you are. Like get out there on social media, you know, connect not network, just connect with people in your area, people that you might have some affiliation with, show how you're different and why you're different. That's going to help you stand out. The second is, you know, in the event that, you know, we know what 2020 has brought, a lot of furloughs, a lot of layoffs, like you have to have multiple streams of income. Start learning from a lot of different people about, you know, setting up a brand. I know that's taboo in SNC and sometimes, you know, in, in dietetics too, but I think that's so important because if you do end up losing your job and you have nothing, like you're screwed. So if you have nothing set up, like, you know, whatever an LLC or web page or a landing or just create some eBooks and sell them for five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever, start doing something like that. And that's the stuff that I'm doing right now in entre entrepreneurship. You know, it doesn't matter how good you think you are or how much experience I have. Like if you don't have a market that you can target and talk to, and understand their pain points and struggles and what, you know, they hope to achieve, then it doesn't matter how much experience you have or how many accolades you have or how many certs you have. Um, I think that that's a big piece. And the next is, and this is one of the biggest thing is stop reading exercise fizz and, and lifting books. I mean, the principles have not changed for decades. I mean, it, it's all going to be the same there. I mean, there's a million ways you can squat, a million ways you can do, you know, eccentric hamstring movements, whatever. Like what's kept me in my job is the fact that the guys were able to speak on working with me, what I was able to do to them, you know, how much EQ and SQ do you have? Can you communicate and work well with others? Can you adapt what you're doing on the fly and realize like, yeah, programming is great, but the second shit goes out the window, you start losing games and guys just are fending for themselves. And, you know, it's hard enough to get them in the weight room. You got to start throwing that out of the window or injuries happen. You have to start adjusting what you do or the coach 
starts changing the time frame of practice and what the lift schedule looks like, yeah, you got to adapt all of that. So you're not going to learn any of that in the textbook. You're going to have to learn how to do that by being comfortable with yourself. So that's some of the advice I, you know, I've tried to put some of that stuff out there on Twitter and social media. Um, again, usually when there is bad advice, I, I don't think a ton of SNC coaches, especially the ones that are well-liked and followed are putting that out there. I'd say I, I agree with more with what they're, what they're trying to share and educate and teach. Uh, sometimes it's like, it comes from sport coaches. I remember there was a, a, a assistant or a head basketball coach of a small college talking about, you need to be available 24 seven for your athletes. Da, 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 that's part of your job. And like I quote, quoted the tweet and said, this is the worst advice I've ever heard. Like the reason a lot of these athletes from high school to college on are failing, especially when they get to the pro level is people are doing way too much for them. So they don't develop any initiative. There's no accountability. There's no autonomy. And it's rampant to where when they get to us, well, I mean, back when I was in, in the NFL and the pros, you have to reteach them stuff from the ground up because people have done too much for them and made excuses for them and held their hand for too long. And it's like, God, we need to teach them about just basic fundamentals in the weight room with recovery, with nutrition, even though somebody has been in their ear teaching them and providing them the same resources for the past four or five years. Ken Manny would often talk about trying to prepare the athlete for the path and not necessarily the path for the athlete or the child, right? And that is that is a travesty that we are somewhat, you know, failing on as a as an industry by our persistent 24 7 365 availability is that we're making that path so easy that when adversity does come around and it will come around that uh that they're not necessarily prepared for it and you talked you talked a, a bunch of different things in there not necessarily always about the worst advice and you gave some great advice in it right from you know creating a brand and and developing and identifying your niche and what you're you know what you're brilliant at what your strengths are um as we've seen, as many of us with, you know, you know, COVID-19 and universities and professional sports, right? Like, which is an in, uh, entertainment industry, right? Like furloughs are, are a real thing. And, um, you know, having an LLC or multiple incomes or ways of developing and, and generating passive income or residual income is, is allows you to at least alleviate some stress. And, you know, you mentioned... Uh, ebooks and and materials but you know like things as far as like i, I think it was um kevin kelly's a thousand true fans right article that he wrote like it doesn't take much if you have a thousand uh a thousand fans in some respects or loyal followers in some respects it doesn't necessarily mean instagram or elsewhere but like a thousand people that will buy or purchase some type of material from you, let's say it's $30, like that's an income right there that can help offset your furlough or pay your rent or provide food on the table for your family or for your um, kids or yourself. So that entrepreneurial spirit, I think in our coaching, which sometimes is frowned upon, every other industry, if you're a lawyer and you were, you know, or a plumber or a you know, like trainers, like, or whatever, if you're a teacher and you're like, oh, I'm going to do this masterclass or I'm going to jump on, um, thinkify or, or thinkific and, uh, create a course, they, they champion you, they'd applaud you. But for our industry, uh, you know, like 
that's frowned upon to try to generate some additional income because you're selling out in some way. And that's that's a huge disservice to us, especially in, in, in somewhat crushing for an entrepreneurial spirit of people that just want to try to do good and, and share their experiences and reach a larger audience and share what's worked for them and help alleviate stress for the younger coaches getting into it or younger practitioners um, while still trying to, you know, uh, pay rent and keep the electricity on. So, hey, I want to, Tika, I want to be respectful of your time. And I, I listen, like all of us, there's a lot that you can take away from this, right? And, you know, the lessons, the journey, the the catalysts of your journey, uh, some of the, the pitfalls of professional sport. And, and it's not just... Um, it's not just professional sport, it's it's any industry, right? With responsibilities and duties and changing of guards and uncertainty. And then you add in isolation and COVID, that could be crazy. And we're all struggling, we're all wrestling with it. And I just wanted to say that I took a lot away from this conversation alone, just some of the lessons and things and made me sort of uh, think about and resonate on some things uh, within my own life. Um, and if that's happening with me, I, I have to imagine anybody listening to this show uh, will also feel the same way. So I want to, A, thank you for coming on the show. B, um, again, I guess say thanks for being, you know, as vulnerable and as open and transparent uh, as you have. C, sharing all of this, but also D, recommend to anybody that's listening to, to, again, check out your resources, uh, head over to the Man on Fire podcast, subscribe there. Uh, is there any way that the listening audience can find, you know, your materials or a website or your social medias? How How is the best way for them to get involved or to contact you if they got questions or just want to learn more? Yeah, I've, I've had a Twitter, LinkedIn and an Instagram account for a while. Everything is at Pratique X Patel. It's P-R-A-T-I-K-X-P-A-T-E-L. And um, over the past few months, just doing a lot of learning about how these mediums like Twitter and Instagram can be valuable and, you know, how can you monetize it? How can you, you know, put your brand out there? There's a, there's a lot of amazing resources and people are, are doing amazing things on Twitter, building their audience and making people's lives better and being able to use it as a stream of income, which I think is, is incredible. So I've, I've been kind of learning about that, learning what I need to do, revamping it. Because as you know, you know, when you work for an organization or a university, uh, sometimes you're not allowed to put out certain things or it has to be educational, like stuff like that was told to me or, you, you know, these posts or that post a little too controversial, watch yourself. So, you know, when you're putting out that educational information, usually it's only stuff that S and C and RDs want to look at. But really, you know, there's so much more that can be done now. You know, I'm, lo- I'm learning about the ins and outs of it and how to grow the audience and build the brand. You know, I'm, I'm becoming more and more active as I'm developing how to transition that. But yeah, you can definitely reach out to me on any of those channels. Um, the website's coming soon. And again, learning all of these different things about entrepreneurship, not just throwing out a website, but making something useful. You know, there's a lot of people that have transitioned to owning their own business or have done it for a really long time that you can learn from. And I've, I've been doing that for the past couple of months. So the website will just be the same. It'll be under pratikexpatel.com. Um, hopefully launching soon, if not, you know, 2021, but that's where people can get a hold of me. 
Awesome. Well, I, I'll make sure to include all your social media handles and, and places that they can reach out to you and, and direct any questions. And as always, man, I appreciate you coming on the show and being as open as you have. Thanks, man. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. That is going to be it for this episode of the Decoding Excellence Show. Hopefully, you took something away from my conversation with Teak, his experience and wisdom and time and just lessons learned uh, being behind the shield in the NFL, working with the New York Giants from uh, the Director of Performance Nutrition and Assistant Strength Conditioning role, his time at University of Oregon and Michigan State University and Kansas State. There's a lot of wisdom in this show, and I think if you listened and took some notes, you will take a lot away from the work-life balance, the lessons, working with mentors and different people within the industry, how to balance your time, and just a lot of good gems in this. As always, there's a number of different ways that you can support the Decoding Excellence show. The newest way you can support is by heading over to adamringler.com and joining the High Performance Insiders. This is an exclusive community that allows you access to the private articles, the private podcast feed, and digital lecture series that's being hosted behind this community wall. Check it out by heading over to adamringler.com and subscribing today. The second way you could support the show is simply by signing up for the newsletter. This is something I take a lot of pride in. I try to go out on the internet, dig up research articles that are fascinating. I try to find the newest technologies, articles I'm reading, uh, research publications, and just really cool things that I discover that sort of exist between performance science, biology, and technology. I think you'll get a lot of value simply by uh, signing up for the newsletter. I promise you, I will never spam you. I will never sell your information or give this out. I cherish this little small community that I'm, I'm creating with this newsletter. The last way you can support the show is simply by heading over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler. Now, the name is a little misleading. You are actually not buying me a coffee. You're buying the show a coffee. It's a micro donation, anywhere from three, four, five dollars so a latte, a cappuccino at Starbucks, essentially. And you're buying and supporting the show's hosting fees and the ability to deliver great content to your ears weekly. So head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Adam Ringler and buy the Decoding Excellence show a coffee. Buy two coffees, buy five coffees if you're an espresso junkie. So as always, I love you guys. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Stay safe, stay strong. Until next time.